I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Over the last couple decades, Italian varieties have become more popular in California. They have such momentum now that several up-and-coming producers have been able to stake much or all of their production on Italian varieties. Italians, and thus echoes of Italy's wine culture, have been a part of California for quite some time, and Italian influence gained serious momentum during the California Gold Rush. In a period of less than a decade, the gold rush brought thousands of 49ers from around the globe, and San Francisco grew from a town of 200 to a city of over 35,000 people. This growth brought infrastructure, trade routes, and a market for California's early wine trade. It also helped create an environment of cultural exchange. After the 1906 earthquake and amidst heavy looting, the Italian founder of the Bank of Italy, which is now Bank of America, hid the money in his bank under trash and vegetables and spirited it away to a safer location. At a strategic wharf, he set up an office made of a plank laid over two barrels. Might they have been wine barrels? And from this office, he made some of the first loans that helped rebuild the city after the earthquake disaster. The San Francisco Opera was founded by an Italian who originally helped produce traveling shows for San Francisco's post-Gold Rush population. And of course, all those 49ers needed something to drink. Some of California's earliest winemaking families were Italian. And Italian grapes made a difference as well. But many of them came much later in California's recent post-prohibition era. Grapes such as Grignolino, Barbera, Sangiovese, Nebbiolo, Sagrantino, and Friulano are becoming more and more prevalent in the palates of California winemakers. A few other Italian varieties merit some additional mention, Ribola Gialla, Alianico, and Vermentino. California Ribola owes its renaissance to the late George Fair. After a life-changing visit to Friuli, Fair returned to California with Ribola Gialla on his mind. And after several more visits to Friuli, he acquired some Ribola from Gravner and began to graft over his Pinot Grigio. Fair's passion for Ribola spread to a small group of friends, and today you can find various styles among several pivotal California producers. 
Alianico from southern Italy has also made its way to California and is making some beautiful wines. Rhyme Wine Cellars started their winery with Alianico and works with some Paso Robles fruit planted in 2001. Fermentino, too, has some serious plantings in California, and producers vary in their treatment of the grape. In fact, sometimes they vary so much in their treatment of the grape that the same producer will make two different Fermentinos. So when we zoom out and look at the big picture, with the abundant and clear Spanish influences over California culture, it's interesting to see the enduring impact that Italians and Italian products and Italian grapes have made and continue to make on California. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Megan Glab of Rhyme Cellars on the show. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Nice to have you here. Yeah, thank you. So where'd you grow up? So I grew up in, in California, actually. Um, grew up in a, a, a town called Carmel. <laughs> I've heard of that. Was Clint Eastwood the mayor at the time? <laughs> yes, he was. That yep. must have been amazing, uh, huh? Pretty amazing. Everyone probably paid their taxes, right? Right, exactly. Otherwise, Dirty Harry was going to come after you and stuff. <laughs> and actually, he had a, a little inn right next door to my elementary, and he would come out and wave to all of us. Really? Yeah. I found him pretty uh, nice in person. I mean, the whole uh, invisible president chair thing was super weird, but like before that, I waited <laughs> on him one time, yeah. like actually a couple of times, and he was super nice. Great guy. Nice guy. And actually, one time, the <laughs> this guy went up to him, and he said... Hey, man, you were so great before. I loved all the stuff you did when you were younger. And he took it like with total equanimity where I would have been like, <laughs> F you, motherfucker. Get the hell away from my table. I don't know who you are. You know, like because he was still making films. You know what I mean? Like, don't you think my work is great Like, now? how rude is that? You know what I mean? But he was totally cool with it. He's like, yeah, thanks. Want an autograph? He was a really nice. Nice guy. Easy going. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what he was like as a mayor, but. I, uh, I was too young to really realize what he was like as a mayor, but I, I yeah, did see him across the fence quite often. <laughs> What'd your family do? So my parents um, own a restaurant, and I think that's probably really got my start in, in wine, is being exposed to food and wine from a really early age. Oh, okay. Yeah, they have a, um, a restaurant called Passion Fish in Pacific Grove, and uh, a really fun wine program that, you know, has a 350 selection list all priced at retail and 
I've always heard good things about the pricing there, like in terms of the selections vis-a-vis what they cost. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's amazing. There's you know, you get a lot of really um, exciting wines at you know retail cost, and there's even wines on there that you can get cheaper than off the mailing list, even from wineries. But that's because wineries are all thieves, right? Is that why? Is that what you're actually trying to imply? <laughs> no, no, not at all. Like when you factor in wholesale versus, you know, a mailing list and shipping to a customer, you know, some some would even land cheaper than that. So we we have a huge following from people who know when certain wines are going to be released. Oh, and then suddenly they're there. And then they jump. Yeah, you know, if I it, bet, actually. Yeah, if anything, that's probably the, the challenging part about it is actually keeping stock or inventory. Um, you're like, hey, we already sold you two bottles. Let's, <laughs> let's give it to somebody else yeah, now. And you're not, you're not allowed to walk away with the wine. you got to sit down and eat. But, you know, that said, with the retail pricing, a lot of people always ask, like, how, how does that work? Like, how do you make that happen? You sit down in the restaurant and there's like four or five bottles on almost every, you know, every table. People really get excited and jazzed about the wine list and aren't afraid to open several bottles because, you know, it, they, they can and they can afford it. So that must have been an interesting environment to grow up in. Yeah. You're like, all the adults like to drink a lot. <laughs> You're all, everyone's hammered. Everyone's hammered. No, it's, it was more like watching my parents have an extreme passion and drive and, you know, watching them work really hard. Like, I definitely got my work ethic from my parents. And yeah. how, did, how was it divided, the restaurant? I mean, how did it? My mom's the front of the house and my dad was, you know, as a chef in the back of the house. So they each had their own specialty and area and they worked really hard and still do to this day. Work, you know, they're very hardworking, passionate people. And did you work in the restaurant with them? Or? I did. Yeah. From, from a very young age, five years old and delivering bread to tables and then all the way through to high school, you know, and they gave me a really um, fundamental skill on on knowing how to operate in um, a restaurant that I could take anywhere, really. And from that, too, you know, just learning how to smell and taste and appreciate flavors came from my time growing up in a restaurant. Because they liked wine and they would, you know, open it and share it with you, right? Yeah, right, right. You know, illegally giving me a sniff and a taste of, of wine. But if you start off early and you train, you know, you're, I mean, smelling and tasting is a, a learned skill. And when you are exposed to it from a, you know, from a young age, you, you know, you, all those flavor memories set in really well, I think. And I hope to do that with my kids, you know, smell this, taste this. You know, that goes with fruits, vegetables, herbs, really understanding what those smell and taste like. So you're a nice parent. You're not like smell this compost. <laughs> I do that too. You gotta know. You gotta go know the nasty stuff as well. <laughs> when did you decide that wine was going to be your thing? Uh, I was I was 15 when I realized that wine was my thing. Definitely wanted to jump in to the winemaking, and I think, you know, winemaking is special because it kind of brings together nature as well as science and art, and I loved all you know all of those things. So I applied to Davis and Fresno and deciding between those two when I heard about the program at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And uh, once I realized it um, was much more intensive, both on the theory side as well as the practical side, I mean, that, it was the place for me. So I, I went to Australia for, I was there for four years for the program and a little bit over. Because with that, you can go direct into wine studies. Like you don't have to do your 
no general education. So, you know, there was, there was no history. There was no English, you know, it was just only classes. That explains that. it about the Australians, huh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> now you get it. Just kidding. <laughs> no, but I, you know, the other big factor too was uh, the drinking age is 18, uh, um, which means you have sensory from day one. Or if you go to Davis or Fresno. Like you're in classes tasting wine. Exactly. Tasting wine, uh, you know, learning your faults, learning the different phases of wine, wines of the world. And if you're, if you're tasting constantly, you, you get perspective of the world of wines or even just, you know, understanding uh, faulty wines. You know, I, I had a lot of classes that showed various forms of faults. And if you are constantly tasting those and trying them, even the rare faults, they stick with you. So it was a really fundamental part of my training, I feel like. Whereas if you'd stayed in California and the drinking age was 21. You get one sensory class if you're lucky. Yeah. So, and you know, it was great too, because here, if you go to school, you're fighting for the classes you want there. The program was completely laid out for me. I never chose a single class. You just went through the motion and there was 40 of us and, you know, some of the greatest people that I know, still a fun group of people. And we, you know, we were there every single day and every single class together and, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to have the stress of picking classes and off your shoulders. You know, you're just focused on what, what you've got ahead of you and, and the classes. What was Adelaide like? Adelaide's great. It was, um, it was a small town that really felt like it was, you know, an overgrown small town. Great food, wonderful restaurants, close proximity to the wine region. So, oh, okay. Yeah. The Barossa Valley, McLarenville, Clare were all within a short driving distance. So that was that was nice for weekend getaways and exploring the, you know, regions of that area in South Australia. And did you end up working in wine while you were there? I did. So part of my program was to ensure I had one semester working for a, a winery and I worked at Torbeck. Oh, okay. Uh, like David Powell's place. David <laughs> At the time. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's actually where I met Ryan, my husband, who's the other 50% of Rhyme Cellars. So that worked out pretty good. It worked out great. I, w- I would say it's got to be the best, uh, <laughs> the best job I've ever had because I, I met the man. <laughs> How did that happen? I mean, you were working there and he came to work there? Or? Yep. So I had been working there for uh, almost a month and Ryan pulled into the driveway and then that was it. You know, he um, he's a really very sweet and quiet guy, but incredibly intelligent. And we are so aligned in what we love, you know, both food and wine and have very similar visions on lifestyles that we like, and as well as wines that we like to drink. And obviously that translates into us making wine together as well. But you were also both from California in Australia. So that kind of worked out. (laughs) I know. How lucky is that? You know, back to my parents, uh, when my mom allowed me to go to Australia, it was on the condition that I was not allowed to fall in love and get married in Australia. Well, I showed her and really? just found that. <laughs> she <laughs> gave you the sit down, the talk? The talk. Which, you know, at 18, you're like, what are you talking about? I'm not getting Right. Married. I'm not. I, who, me? Yeah. I want my freedom. Yeah. I was like, marriage? Come on, mom. Do I look like that kind? <laughs> I want adventure. I'm never getting married. I'm not having kids. And, you know, little did I know she was she was much wiser than me. Um, but, but she was probably psyched that you came back to California. She did. Yeah. I 
gave them a call, said, I found the one. He's it. Surprise. He's from California and I'm bringing him home with me. That was, yeah, it was great. You know, couldn't, couldn't have written a better story. Cause it's tough to get together for Thanksgiving when they don't celebrate Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. I had to make my own Thanksgiving over there. You create your own. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Do they have turkeys? Uh, you know what? We never had turkey. I always, you know, and you know, that said, I'm not a big turkey person. Anyways. Yeah, well, me neither. But if it were taken away from me forever, I might be, <laughs> yeah. you know, I might get nostalgic for it or something. Right. No, yeah, I, I, I don't think I ever had turkey while I was there. I may be wrong. So was Ryan also like a wine guy from the beginning or? He, so he had a very different way of getting into the wine business. He, um, as I said, Ryan's incredibly smart. He was studying biomedical engineering at the University of um, San Diego. Oh, okay. And he had a side job and he was, you know, he was really hating, you know, the program. He found it too um, competitive, intense, which if you know Ryan, that Ryan's not at all like that. And so during his job, he kind of got exposed to both beer and wine. And when he realized, hey, I can make wine for a living, he was like, what am I doing? So he applied to Fresno and transferred over there and had just finished up his degree when he uh, came out to Torbeck for a harvest. And so you did harvest at Torbrek, and what did you learn from that experience? It was really interesting to see how a business was run. I think, too, um, at the time, Dave was in the process of getting another facility built, but there was maybe three different facilities kind of across a huge area, like, a you know, the valley was like a 45-minute drive from one end to the other. So interesting to see that, but also a different type of wine production as well to even to what we're doing, a lot of old vineyards, which were really beautiful, you know, 80-year-old vine, Grenache, but, you know, definitely on the riper side of things than what we're doing now. Um, but it was also kind of that era, right? Exactly. It was the Parker era, and, and those, you know, those wines definitely embodied that style, so just seeing how that was made, but also I, you know, still when I look back on those vintages, we, we a, a year and a half ago we tried some older um, Torbeck from two thousand three, and it's like you know there's still you know there's a a sweet ripe fruit side of it, but there's also a savory edge, and you kind of you know looking at that and what they did was really fascinating to see how that interpreted into the bottle. A lot of times I enjoyed the cheaper Torbeck wines, right. And they did a great job with that. So delicious. You know, the stainless steel fermented juveniles, you know, and, they, you know, pretty considering what I have worked with here in California is actually a larger production, even though it was small for Australia. And seeing how, you know, you make those really great wines at, at a larger, large-ish volume. <laughs> Because that's probably the big trick in terms of, like, getting all the logistics down. Yeah. Like, if you can't just be like, hey, I have my one barrel that I rub like Kobe <laughs> beef on the regular. You know right. what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, I mean, Australia, you got to remember, though, too, There's it's very different. So, Torbrook is very small for Australia. But when you look at, um, you know, there there's – in Australia, there's a lot of machine harvesting. There's not – you know, there's not the same workforce that we have oh, in California. You know, it's it's different. It's a it's a different type of production and running a business. So Torbeck, we you know we'd go out and pick stuff, but you don't have the same workforce to do that as we have the luxury of 
in California. It's tough to get migrant labor when they have to come by boat. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but you, you're talking about a country that is the size of the U.S. And there, when I was there, it was 24 million. At the time, you know, California is 32 million. So think about that. Like there's, you know, there's not the same population that, you know, we have here. You know, you're the saying the landmass is the same as U.S.? Yeah. Oh, so I didn't know that. Right? Yeah. Look, I mean, look at a map, but it almost yeah, looks like... <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> it, you know, it looks like the U.S. like kind of flopped, you know? it's. Oh, it, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's huge. It's a massive, massive country. and How big is the Sydney Opera House? I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the size of Wyoming. <laughs> Something like that. It's just you always see it in a wide angle, so you never realize. Right. You know? That's the only picture of Australia, I think, that anybody says, like, Australian, you just think of the Opera House, right? I do. Yeah, I do, yeah, too. And, like, coral reefs and stuff. Like Great Barrier Reef. Great Barrier Reef. I was, like, still, though, it's like the Sydney Opera House. Totally yeah, it is. Yeah, and, like... It's actually a, the size of the country. It just takes over the whole country. <laughs> and, like, that book, A Town Like Alice, right. which hopefully you'll never see as a movie, because that movie is terrible. <laughs> so... <laughs> So you come back to California. Come back to California. Ryan, um, I had one semester left. So we we lived apart for six months. Ryan was doing a harvest at Sinoquinon, which Dave Powell, is, he's been also incredibly supportive and got help Ryan get a job at Sinoquinon. Oh, so he like called up Manfred and was like, yo. He did. He's like, this guy's okay. I think you should give him an internship. So Ryan worked there. And when I got back, we applied for jobs up in Sonoma County and I worked for Pay Vineyards for the harvest. Why did you pick Sonoma County? We love it up there. Sonoma is, you know, there's kind of just this laid back, very honest and sincere side that we were drawn to. We also find the vineyards up there pretty exciting. It's a, a just a cool place to be. There's definitely a, a young energy that is drawing to Sonoma. There's some youngsters around doing some cool stuff. There are some youngsters around doing stuff, but it, you know, it's also just more of a mind frame that, you know, a little bit more open to trying something new and different. Because sometimes when you're in Napa and you talk about Sonoma, people are like, oh, everyone's so old over there. <laughs> this is true. Yeah, Happens. Absolutely. Yeah. You it know does. what I mean? But yeah. you're saying that within that, there's also like a youth culture thing happening. There is definitely a youth culture happening. I mean, even in our small little town of Healdsburg of 10,000 people, there's three blocks from us on either side, there's four or five winemakers doing some fun and exciting new stuff. And we were, we were really drawn to the people up there that were doing things a little bit differently. So I mean, at the time, pay like being way out there in Annapolis, you know, the Syrah is like boarding on the edge of ripeness. And there's years where they don't, you know, it's hard and challenging for them. And to me, the wines that are boarding on the edge of ripeness. You're saying energy. edge of ripeness to get it ripe, not edge of ripeness N like overripe. No, to get it ripe, you know, like you're s struggling to get it up there, but that's what makes wines exciting. It's those places that I think make special wines. So that was really what drew me to the area. And the Pei Syrah was really exciting. I also love Vanessa's white wines. I think Vanessa she, Wong. Vanessa Wong of Pei Vineyards. Um, she makes some really great wines. And Ryan all, um, applied at Pax Cellars um, and got a job with Pax Mealy and is still um, his assistant winemaker to this day. Oh, okay. Yeah. So what are all those people like? I mean, what's it like working with Vanessa Wong? Vanessa, she 
was really wonderful in sharing her information and knowledge. I think there's a lot of winemakers that can, you know, hold on tightly and not necessarily want to explain their decision making and why they're doing the things that they're doing. Vanessa was really giving in that she would explain to me step by step what was going on in her head and the and why she was making the choices she was. So not just telling you what to do, but explaining to you why. Explaining. And that that was, you know, that was really crucial for me. And she really I learned more from her than any other winemaker I worked with. What were some of those things? I mean, what came about of that? I, you know, it was just more seeing the process from start to finish. It was the first place that I worked for where I saw wines, you know, the grapes come in and then translate into a bottle and why she was picking. I I think picking was the biggest thing that I learned from her, why she was picking when she was and how that translated to the final, to the final wine. I took a lot from her with the white wine production, you know, even how she was pressing the wines, the neutral barrel fermentations that she was doing were really exciting for me. And So not using new wood? Not using new wood. Not having it taste like butter. No. And I mean there there was definitely new wood in the in the facility, but you know, there was a a freshness and I you know, I I will never forget her telling me when she was picking her Chardonnay, she's like, Megan, I love acid so it hurts. And I like that sits with me and I it resonated with me because I love acid, so it hurts. So when she was tasting those grapes, you know, the Chardonnay and she's like this this acid hurts and it's you know everything else is in line this is when we're i'm gonna pick and i i love that <laughs> and so what was your next stop after pay um after pay i worked for markison oh, okay so yeah. a little bit different in terms of ripeness definitely definitely different i think you know my approach was let's work or i wanted to work with um, a variation of producers who were doing different styles but making good wines for that style. So I think it's um, important to understand how each is achieved so that when I started making my own wine, I kind of knew what I personally wanted and, you know, had an idea of how to get there. So that makes sense. So you actually had the different roadmaps and you could kind of chart your own course between those roadmaps. Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, Ryan and I are a great team together in that Ryan, you know, having worked with Sinequanon and Pax, he, he kind of focused more on Syrah and he had his different roadmaps. So when we come together, you know, we um, we have different strengths and we can help each other out. What was Helen Turley like? Helen Turley was really supportive and extremely kind in that she would she wanted to know who I was and was interested in my day to day. Which that doesn't always happen. You know, you can work for wineries and they're like, oh, you're just the new intern doing my work. But Helen, you know, took it upon herself to get to know me and the other intern who was there. And I I really enjoyed working with her. And what did you pick up from her style? I mean, it seems like she had such a imprint. She did. I, You know, what I really learned about winemaking there was actually... The fruit was immaculate. I think it's the prettiest fruit that I have ever seen come through. It was gorgeous. And, you know, again, it's just, you know, having this beautiful fruit and then 
doing something completely different, not necessarily what I would choose in mind, but seeing how it makes this wine that is really interesting and uh, another viewpoint. I, I really loved that. Yeah. And you also worked as a sommelier yourself. I did. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously growing up in restaurants, it was kind of, you know, I think once you've worked in restaurants and you've been in restaurants, it never leaves you. It's like in your bones, in your blood. Right. Right. I mean, I still bust stuff at restaurants I don't work at. I'm like, oh, let me carry this. Oh, I don't actually work here. It's, it's hard. It's hard to get out of it. I love, I still, I'd love it. So, you know, when I was in Australia, I worked in a restaurant over there. I kind of, I just kind of never stopped. So when we moved back, I was offered, or actually I was approached by a friend who said, hey, my buddy, who is Jeff Kruth, is about to have a baby and he needs somebody to fill on the floor at the farmhouse. Uh, can you can you fill in next week? And I was like, well, okay, sure. So I filled in and Jeff and I get along really well. We have, you know, similar likes in wines. And after that, I kind of you know, would fill in at the farmhouse inn every now and then, and eventually because he was the wine director. Because he was the wine director. And at still the time. is. Um, no, he he's no longer the wine director oh, as of know. last year. Okay, but he's got other master sommelier stuff. Going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous podcast. I know, stuff. right? Yeah. Lots of stuff to do. But he also likes Italy a lot. He loves Italy. I was like, we definitely have that in common that we both had this immense uh, love for Italy. And actually, I do. I do make wine with Jeff. Jeff and the, the brother and sister team of the farmhouse in Joe and Catherine Bartolome. Um, we have a brand called Lost and Found, where we make Pinot Noir for that. Hopefully, them. more found than lost. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, mean, definitely. Yeah, know, hopefully, by consumers I, and stuff. I'm yeah. Hopefully, not not losing the way. <laughs> but while you're doing all that. Back at the PAX facility. Back at PAX. We're we're making our own stuff. You know, we're getting going. And so you were actually kind of birthing rhyme out of the PAX. We were. We were. You know, PAX and Pam both have been incredibly supportive to Ryan and I and really letting us get going with rhyme sellers. And that's crucial. I mean, you know, with how expensive both land and rent is in California, you know, we would never, we wouldn't be where we are today without Pax and Pam. And I am forever grateful for that. And I really, you know, I wish that there were more people as supportive and cultivating new brands under their roof as Pax and Pam are doing. You know, Rhyme, Jolie Laid, and Arnott Roberts all began under their roof. And I... So basically all of those are employees at one time or another. Exactly. Like Scott, Duncan, and then Ryan. And Ryan. All, yeah, all assistant winemakers at one point. And they got to kind of also in that space make their own wine. Exactly. Under their own label. Under their own label. You know, there's, you know, there's in the businesses, and this is extremely rare. I don't, I don't think people understand how rare it is to have, you know, a winemaker be as supportive as Pax is. You know, he is the first to introduce us to new people and say, oh, you should try the rhyme wines. You know, there's there's no ego as far as protecting his brand. He's willing to put himself out there in helping us. And that is a trait that should be carried through to a lot more winemakers. Because, you know, if you're if you're out there and you're exploring new varieties and brands, you, you know, you're more excited and you're more interested and invested in what not only you personally are doing, but the people that you are working with too. And it, you know, it's great. It kind of, it creates a, 
a great camaraderie around everyone. When was the set point when you and Ryan said, hey, yeah, let's have our own label? Well, it, that just kind of, it just happened. 2007, we brought in the Alianico from the Lunamata Vineyard, which Ryan and I are obsessed with Alianico. And we had a friend call us and say, hey, you know, I know you like these weird varieties. Any chance you want to make Alianico? So we, we said, hell yes, and brought up the one ton. And we, you know, we didn't really know if we were making it just for fun or if we were creating a brand. And it came in and it was very clear at the point where the day it was picked, it was like, this is it. This is what we want to be doing. So we, um, you know, we just started picking up vineyards along the way, things that we were excited about. And how did you go about doing that? It's challenging in that, you know, I, for us, because we are so excited about Italian varieties, obviously there's not a lot of that planted out there. I think we really, we wait for a vineyard to sing to us, you know, or to catch our attention. So the next was actually, um, we made a Cabernet in 2008 and 2009 from the Clajou Vineyard, a beautiful spot that we thought produced great fruit. And so we picked that up in 2008. And, and then in 2009, we picked up Rabula Gialla. And that came about because we were obsessed with Rabula. And we went to Friuli and tasted with Radicon. And we were tasting with Sasha and he told us about the Bear Vineyard. And Oh, Sasha Radicon told you about a vineyard in California. <laughs> so he did. Can you believe that? He said, yeah, you know, my friend George Bear got cuttings from Grovner and put Robola in. We're like, what? Are you kidding? There's Robola in Napa. So we got home and basically called and begged and begged. And George was like, eh, no, I'm not going to sell the fruit. And at the time he was making it for himself. So Because he used to have the Bear label. He used he, to make the... Did. With like Abe and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. Abe was the winemaker. So we were offered the fruit in 2009 along with six other producers. So, you know, back to the the question of how do you come about? I think, you know, things just co naturally come to us. And, and they, we are seeking other vineyards. However, you know, it kind of, it needs to make sense. It needs to be the right variety in the right place. That seems like a theme for you. It, it is. It's definitely a, a huge theme for us. And, you know, it's more finding people who are willing to put in these different varieties or put it, putting in varieties that are bordering on the edge of ripeness in, in their area. You know, we make, we make Cabernet Franc in the Russian River Valley, but that's actually a kind of a, it's a cool spot for Cabernet Franc. You know, we bring it in at 21 bricks at the, you know, in October. So, you know, having a grower who's willing to put that in and stand by it is, is more the challenge. <laughs> so do you think that you deal with Fiano, Robola Jala, Vermentino, and Alianico because you're really big into Italy or because those grapes work in, in warmer conditions and California's warmer conditions? Both. Both reasons. I think there needs to be more, especially Southern Italian varieties. I was like, Fiano, Alianico makes perfect sense to me as a person who loves acid and uh, tannin and structure because these varieties ripen later. You know, we're a sun loving state. We have a sunny disposition. So why not have varieties there that grew up in that setting? Alianica, we bring it in and Paso Robles is warm. It's not, you know, there's not a cold spot. Bring it in and there's, a, you know, it's a very high acid pH of 3.2, 3.3. It's singing. And because we don't ameliorate our wines, meaning we do not add water, we do not add acid, we need it to come in where everything is as it should be. And I think these varieties have that potential 
to be as they should. You know, so the Fiano, again, we pick it at 21, 22 bricks, but it's ripe, you know, it's flavor ripe. It's, it's phenolically ripe. And then it has all the acid at the same time. Well, what's it like to, I mean, you said a little bit how you find it, but it must be difficult to find some of these, what I would think of as offbeat for California, grape varieties in California. They definitely are, you know, like the Vermentino, for example, we found that there's a grape grower report that's put out every year. Ryan was reading the grape growing report and we really wanted to make Vermentino, but hadn't found a site that we thought was conducive to the variety. And Ryan saw that um, there was a, a vineyard planted to Vermentino right above the San Pablo Bay in Corneros. And he was like, this is perfect. It has all the marine influence, kind of cooler aspects. So we went and peeked over the fence. Um, you just we, like went up, and, yeah, like we, no appointment or anything? We did. Francis, I'm sorry. You're like, <laughs> you're give me a this? boost. I'll look over the fence. <laughs> you know, did the, the peek over the fence. and Did you like, bring the yeah, bolt cutters yeah. as well? You're like, <laughs> you know, it's a lot of fence hopping and what I do. And then, you know, cold, basically cold called the um, grower. And, I, you know, there's a lot of begging that goes on. Begged for fruit again. And it, once again, he had never sold the fruit to anybody else. He had been making it. Um, under his own label and he he agreed and you know off we went with Ryan Bermentino so you know it's we're definitely you know in the hands of other people being excited about these varieties and wanting to keep them in but the Vermentino, you make a couple of different ways. So why is that? <laughs> we do. We do. I mean, two winemakers and one winery is kind of like two chefs in a kitchen. You've worked in kitchens before. <laughs> you know, there's bound, there's bound to be a point where we disagreed on how we wanted to approach a wine. And that was the case with the Vermentino. And it was funny because we happened, we got all the way through the fence jumping to the, you know, solidifying the fruit. And realized we want to do two very different things. Oh, like you weren't on the same page at the beginning. We were not on the same page in the beginning. We just didn't realize. I, you know, Ryan's like, oh, yeah, my, we're going to do a skin for man. I'm like, what are you talking about? It's going to be so nice to have this, like, bright, crisp style. He's like, no, that's not what we're doing. We're doing a skin fermented Vermentino. So, you know, there's no in-between. So we each have our own. We have the, the his and the hers. And, you know, from that day forward, it's the bright, clean style is the hers, which is stainless steel and neutral barrel fermented. And then Ryan's spends the entire fermentation on skins and stems. And which do you like better? Uh, See, I love trick question. <laughs> huh? Huh? Right. Gotcha. I, I love them both. <laughs> you know, I think they each have their own place, you know. You know, on a hot, sunny day, the hers, you know, you want to drink it. Where the his is great with food. I mean, it really is. They're... Skim fermented whites, you know, with all that structure and tannin, but there's still the freshness. Like those are wines that sing through a whole meal. You can eat it with fish all the way to heavy, rich pork dishes, and it still works. A lot of times when I look at your production numbers, it's like 40 cases of this. I, I mean, it's, you know, it's not. What's it like to make 40 cases or something? What's it like in the market to sell 40 cases? Is everything selling one day? or? Yeah, I mean, it, especially like the Alianico and Rebola Jello that are extremely small. It goes really fast. And right now it's, um, you know, just a matter of trying to keep everybody happy with it. At, at the same time, you know, it's hard because I'd like to see more of these varieties planted. But being a young couple in California, buying land is not an option. Hopefully in the future, that might be a possibility. So I would love to see more and have more of these um, wines. You know, I'd love to have a couple hundred cases of Alianico where I could lay down 20 cases of it because that's a wine built for longevity. I think that's the hardest thing for me is not having enough to, to set aside, of particularly that variety. 
But it must be interesting to deal with parcels in different areas of the state and to make such different grape varieties because, you know, we think of them all as Italian grape varieties, but you couldn't go to one place in Italy where a guy makes a Vermentino mm-hmm. Fiano and Robola Gialla. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, but you can do that, like, um, bureaucratically and logistically it in works. California. But, I mean, they'll also think about... You, you can't go to France and have Pinot Chard and Syrah in the same producer either. You know, there was a time where Pinot was untouchable. That's Burgundy. You know, it's just a matter of changing perception and and being open to new things. I think Alianico and Robola, especially, people see it as one. But even more so, which we don't make, Nebbiolo is like, you know, it's the untouchable. <laughs> it is for now, yeah. Right. I mean, but, you know, Pax makes some. He does, yeah, and he makes great Nebbiolo. But I think I think it's even harder with Nebbiolo than some of the varieties we make, personally. But I mean, because California is probably difficult. I don't see so much fog yeah, outside <laughs> of the Bay Area. You know what I mean? Right, 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 definitely. But there, I mean, it's it just you know I think that people feel so strongly about Barolo or Barbaresco. It's like you can't make that. You can't make that in California. And again, that's kind of back to the Burgundy comparison is. There's, at some point, there's got to be, you know, you got to play, you got to experiment. We're a young winemaking area and there's, you know, there's still a lot of room to learn and play. And, you know, we're not, we're not confined to rules and regulations of what we can grow. And that's, I think that's exciting. You know, try something new and different. Who wants to be confined to one or, you know, eight varieties? You know, a lot of times in California, it seems like there's a kind of a herd of Cabernet, Chardonnay, Pinot, Merlot. Absolutely. And I was, then, then there's you whack jobs. Then us weirdos <laughs> like, over there in the corner <laughs> so does, with your weird stuff. <laughs> does that help you or hurt you in the market? Like, do you stand out so people come to you because you're the one Alianico producer or the, the I, one of three? Or does that mean like people are like, oh, no, that's that's voodoo over there? No, I think I think it's a kind of a combination of both. I, I mean, of course the mass general public is not going to, they even look at and like, how do I pronounce that? And it can be intimidating at the same time because we aren't just kind of making the mainstream stuff. We do, we get a lot of interest from people who are like, wow, I've never heard that that's grown in California. I'd love to check it out. So it's, you know, a little bit of both. Is the interest level different on the different coasts? Do you get a different level of interest from say California sommeliers and retailers than New York sommeliers and retailers? Yeah, we do. I was California right now. There is a, you know, especially in San Francisco, people are really excited about what's going on in California and very, very supportive. You know, that said though, with New York, even from last year when I was here, I felt like there's been a huge shift in being open to these different things that are going on. Like, hey, there's actually some cool stuff happening in California and some excitement to to that. But, you you know, in New York, you are so close. Your proximity to Europe and the things that you can get is is very different from our proximity. And the, the, the most challenging aspect of that as a young producer making these weird varieties is you can get, you know, you can get Vermentino from Corsica and, uh, Liguria for really cheap, you know, here, you know, $19, where in California, we're paying expensive fruit prices. And then once we ship it here, you know, it's it's much more expensive than where it came from traditionally. So you're kind of on both sides of a rock and a hard place, because on one side, you have a market that says, oh, well, I can get the, the supposedly genuine article from Italy for cheaper if I want Vermentino or Fiano. 
And then on the other side, you're trying to convince growers to keep the vines on the ground because they're like, oh, I could replant this to something else like Cabernet or Chardonnay and make more money for it. Exactly. You know, Arfiano is a good example of that. You know, when we found this vineyard, he was planning on butting it over to Cabernet because look, when you can get five to $8,000 a ton for Cabernet. I can't pay that for Fiano at the most, a couple thousand. So it's hard. You got to have somebody who wants to have these weird varieties and is willing to back you by keeping it in there. And hopefully it ends up working out for both the winery producer or us and the grower. And, and it's just about talking and making sure it's working for everybody. But it's not so much weirdness for weirdness sake is the, the fact that you think it works better with the climate. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the Fiano, for example, the grower had gone over and really enjoyed the wines from Campania, the white wines, and was like, this is really good. And I think it would, it you know, makes sense in our, our vineyard because our vineyard is a similar climate. So that's what, when, when we went and looked at the vineyard, it was like this variety comes in again, like late September and it's 21 bricks and it has all the flavor ripeness and um, ripeness in the skins. And that's really important, you know, to plant varieties that are able to ripen in the environment without going overripe, in my opinion. But it must be interesting to make grape varieties like that where there's not so many people you can call and be like, hey, what do you do with your Fiano? I mean, <laughs> there are a couple, but not so many. That no. You can be like, not so many textbooks you can read about like no. California Fiano maybe. Right. You know? <laughs> just got that. No, I think that just goes into intuition. And really, I was like the, you know, that's the education of tasting and drinking a lot of wines, <laughs> which is fun, right? So we, you know, we do. We we drink a lot of wines from from Italy and I mean Europe in general, all over the world, and you know we taste them and then kind of think, oh, how how is this executed and how is this made? And then when the fruit comes in, we just get a feel for the place and the vineyard and basically what's going on in that vintage and approach it from there. And hopefully, we're making you know an an honest and somewhat representative wine of both where it came from, Italy, but also with California in mind as well, you know, showing some of the, the sites of California. What do you think you've learned about handling some of those grape varieties over time? I mean, has your approach evolved a little bit when you're like, hey, you know, I've done this Vermentino harvest a few times. Now I got an idea of what I want to do. Or Yeah, no, I, th I don't even think that it's necessarily just the variety. It's more the vineyard, you know, every, even if you have, you know, I don't have three Vermentino vineyards, but we have a couple Pinot vineyards. And Give this you goes, time, I'm sure right? you will. Yeah. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> but I, you know, each vineyard reacts or, you know, acts differently and every vintage is different. That's the exciting thing about my job is every year there's something new that's thrown our way and that's fun. I feel like if we or if I'm doing my job correctly and Ryan's doing his job correctly, we are putting a wine in the bottle that is representative of the time and the place, both the vintage and the variety without just making a product that is the same from year to year. You want the wine to actually encapsulate that time and place. So, you know, when we approach a wine every year, it's, you know, it's slightly different. It's altered to accommodate the grapes and, and how they come in. And every year we're learning something new. So yes, every year we're changing, uh, changing things up and, you know, aiming for a particular style and hopefully, you know, it all turns out great. <laughs> but if somebody showed up at the winery and said, Hey, I have an interest in working with Fiano, I mean, or Alianico, what would you tell that person? I mean, what makes sense for those grape varieties? 
I mean, it starts with the vineyard, right? So you, uh, it has to be the right environment, both climate wise and soil. The soil needs to make sense too. So I'd start off there. It's like, what's your climate like? Will Alianico work well? Will Vermentino work there? They're two different varieties that are going to work better in different places. So assessing that. And then also just stylistically what you want to do. It's like the Vermentinos. You have the his and the hers. You have the bright side and then you have the skim fermented side. So, you know, there's many factors that go into telling somebody, you know, how to work with a variety because really it depends on their their goal at the end of the day. But you also work with some French varieties that more people would be familiar with, like Pinot Noir and Cabernet Franc and occasionally Cabernet. We, you know, it's just about finding vineyards that we think are conducive to those varieties, as well as the other varieties we work with. So um, the Cabernet Franc, you know, we love Cabernet Franc. We particularly are uh, drawn to the to the Cabernet Francs of the Loire. And so this vineyard is planted in the Russian River Valley, you know, surrounded by Pinot. And, and, you know, it's fun because almost all of our vineyards, we've had the same experience where we go in and we're like, we want this fruit. And they're like, well, let me give you the caveat. Like, we're lucky to get it to 23 bricks by the end of October. We're like, check. Yeah. Yes, I like that. Sign on the dotted line. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, but it kind of, you know, we're lucky to, you know, get it ripe enough where you're happy. And I'm like, nope, nope, this is it. We're no. When, when anybody kind of gives that caveat, I'm totally in, I'm all in. And the Fiano, you know, the grove is like, and it kind of gets like somewhat orange on the skins. I'm like bring it on. This is, this is exactly what I want to do. My kind of wine. <laughs> How many people feel that way in California? Is that a, there's definitely a trend, you know, the pendulum, Pendulum swung one way and now it's going all the way back. And, you know, there's people from the, ex, you know, extreme, super early pick to somewhere in the middle and still people on the other side. So there is, there's definitely more of a movement towards lower alcohol wines. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing, and now we're a couple years into people really going that direction. So you're seeing that reflect in the, in the marketplace too. So what's the marketplace like for a small wine? Do you do a lot of wine uh, mailing list sales directly or where, how, do you, how does it work? We do. So we have a mailing list with allocations and we were slow. We started, we started off with 50 cases and then moved up to 100 cases and then 250 cases. And as you grow, your customer base grows. And we were lucky because had we, we started in 2007 with Alianico, had we released Alianico in 2008, there was, that I don't think the market would have been ready for it. We just happened to come out in 2011 with our wines where I think people were a little bit more open-minded. There was an, a conversation, a new conversation happening. And we were, we were lucky to be there at the right time and the right place. So I think, you know, it was a combination of making wines that we love and good timing. So we we sell mailing lists and then San Francisco has been a huge supporter of what we are doing. So we do sell to a lot of restaurants in in San Francisco as well as, you know, New York and and now actually interestingly enough, UK is all about California wines. Oh, is that true? It is. I guess I I know, right? <laughs> we we've been I I think part of it is Probably the New California Wine, John Bonet's book, has helped out a lot of us and brought some attention to to the area. But there seems to be more interest in California wines from these other markets. We're sending wine to Singapore 
you know, and we're so small. It's like, how, how do these people hear of us? But it's exciting and it's really great. It's great to see uh, enthusiasm for what everybody is doing right now in California. And it is, it's an exciting time. Do you see more year to year loyalty from a certain segment of the audience? We do. I mean, you do, you get like, you get your mailing list buyers where, you know, people who are super jazzed about your varieties or your wines and they buy year to year. And then you get, you know, get buyers in restaurants where they really get behind a brand and, and promote it. And that kind of turns around into people signing up on our mailing list, which is great. Couldn't do what we do today without that support. So what happens next for Rhyme Sellers? So Rhyme is growing up and moving out of Pax's home <laughs> where we are, we are moving into a facility just north of Healdsburg. We've rented our own little bay next to Sam Bilbro of Idlewild, which is really exciting. A, a great friend who's making Italian varieties as well. And, you know, it's going to be wonderful to be in our own space. At the same time, it's going to be a little sad to to not be um, with Pax and Scott on a, on a regular basis. So when you have your own space, does the pricing then have to change because you're paying for more stuff or? No, you know, we, so we are, we are buying, now we have to, you know, buy the expensive equipment, things like presses that are incredibly expensive. However, um, the place that we are moving into is lower rent costs. And we are very conscious of trying to keep our costs down and especially doing what we're doing. You know, we are, we are competing with the, the wines from Europe that are, you know, of uh, lower price points. So uh, we, we do. a stronger dollar probably didn't help that. Stronger dollar, yeah. Well, actually, you know, you say that, but a lot of our winery equipment, like, you know, it comes from Europe. So right now, you know, you're buying a press at 25% less than what it would have been last year. It's a big deal, Well right? played, Megan Clapp. <laughs> well played. Yep. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's got all of its catches. But yeah, it's, it's going to be nice to focus on our, on on our wines and uh you know because we're are it's just ryan and i we now hopefully are not going to be you know running around with three full-time jobs between the two of us and so you're going to do less consulting work yeah um well we still will continue doing consulting but you know we have two young children as well and just trying to make it so that we can can focus a little bit easier without you know, working 18 hour days all, all the time. <laughs> if you were to do it all over again, what do you think you would tell yourself? I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything at all. Actually. I think, you know, every, every step of the way you're learning something new and different and we wouldn't be here doing what we're doing and loving with changing any, any step. I think, you know, if I was, you know, I would tell myself, just continue doing what you love. That's the most important part of, of life if you're if you are happy and you're doing what you love then life is good yeah megan glab life is good at <laughs> rhyme sellers thank you very much for being here today thank you thank you so much for having me megan glab of rhyme sellers all drink to that is hosted and produced by myself levy dalton aaron scala has contributed original pieces editorial assistance has been provided by bill kimsey the show music was performed and composed by rob moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, 
and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.